Well, I'm not sure about you all, but I've never been able to get sorted all the different titles of British royalty and nobility. Ever since the revolution, British nobility has been irrelevant to us Americans. So I'm sure you're like me and you have no idea what these titles all mean. Like, what's the difference between an earl and a baron? What do those even mean? I had to look this up. And just by way of opening illustration, let me bring you up to speed. For quite some time, Britain has been very divided into distinct social classes. There's royalty at the top, followed by nobility, followed by the gentry, and then all, all the commoners. And starting at the bottom, you have the gentry, which are basically wealthy landowners. They're upper class, but not of the nobility. And from bottom to top, their ranks go from gentleman to esquire to clan chief to knight to baronet. And then above the gentry come the nobility. This class consists of noble families who trace their bloodlines way back. And starting at the bottom, you have baronet and then viscount, then earl, marquess, and at the top, duke. All these except dukes are generically referred to as lords. And then the dukes at the top, and the duchesses, that's the highest level of nobility you can get to apart from the the monarch, the royalty. In fact, many dukes and duchesses will be princes and princesses, which brings us to the the top echelon, which is the royalty. There you have the princes and the princesses, the the children and grandchildren of the monarch. And at the very top, you at least know that one, the king and or the queen, who at least used to be the supreme ruler of England. What's interesting to us to think about, though, is where did all these names and social strata come from? When you think about it, uh, at one point or another, they were just made up. Someone just made them up. Over the centuries, rich and powerful men wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to honor themselves. So they just created these titles for themselves to set themselves above and apart from everyone else. This is really just a reflection of man's heart delighting to call himself king and sovereign and lord and magnify his own name. But in reality, we know that there's only one name worthy of all such praise, and that's the name of God. Only God is the true sovereign, the true king, the true lord of all the earth. And so it's the desire of the faithful to live not for their own name, but for his name's sake, to glorify his name. And speaking of names, there's a huge significance attached to names in the Bible. Names were not just simple, arbitrary titles given to people. They were very thoughtfully and carefully chosen and infused with rich meaning. And it's very much the case for the names of God, that the person of God and the name of God are joined at the hip. God's names capture some essential part of his character, like his his name Lord, title Lord expresses his complete sovereignty or his covenant name Yahweh expresses some of his intimate unconditional love God takes his names very seriously his names and titles represent his nature to us remember God is spirit so how are we to know him if we can't see him one of the chief ways God reveals himself to us is through his names This is why, for example, maybe you've never thought about this. We've got the Ten Commandments, for example. Number one, God says, have no other gods before me. Number two, don't make an idol or a graven image. And number three, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And those three go together. They're all about getting God right and not misrepresenting him. 
The problem with graven images and, and idols is that no image can really capture the essence of God. Any image will, will misrepresent God to some degree, so God says no images. I'm not to be known by any image. Instead, he's to be made known by his name. But that too can be misused, so God warns against any improper or invalid use of his name. So all you can see, or as you can see, God's name, it's a pretty big deal to him. His name was to be supreme among, among all the people. His name alone was to be worthy of all praise. His name was to be the name above all names. Now that being the case, it makes you wonder, how, what do you make of Philippians chapter 2? This passage in Philippians chapter 2, and if you can take a clue, you can open your Bibles there now. You know, for weeks we've been going through the book of Philippians. We just covered Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. It's really a magnificent passage all about Christ, his incarnation, his death, his exaltation. But Paul expresses Christ's exaltation in a unique way. He says, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. He says, For this reason also, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I thought the name of God was supposed to be the name above all names. I thought every knee was going to bow to God and confess, every tongue would confess that God is Lord. That's what the Old Testament says. Yet all of these supreme honors are transferred to Jesus. So what does that mean? And take it even further, what if I actually told you Jesus possesses many names and titles of God? God doesn't share his glory with another. He doesn't share his names with another. Yet we find Jesus possessing all these different names and titles of God. So what does that mean? Well, it means only one thing, that Jesus is likewise God. Jesus shares in the divine nature. It shouldn't be too surprising. And Paul said just as much back in verse 6 of Philippians 2, which we also covered. He said, speaking of Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In that one verse, Paul says Jesus existed in the very form of God. He had the essential nature of God. He was equal with God. All that is some pretty significant teaching, so much so that we've been revisiting it to take it further. And so a few weeks ago, we went through all of verses 5 through 11 as we're going through Philippians, but, but now we're in no rush to, to speed along and move along. Knowing Christ worshiping Christ. That's why we're here. That's why the church gathers. We're called Christians. We're about him. Now, so here we have in Philippians 2, one of the, the chief passages on Christ outside the Gospels. It's worth our time just, just to pause here and meditate, reflect on Christ, his person, his work. And we're doing that starting with his deity. We believe and we confess along with the church down through the ages that Jesus is to be worshipped and exalted as supreme in our lives because he is God made flesh. He is the God man. He is divine. 
It's a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. And it's not a truth that was made up in the annals of church history. It's taught in Scripture itself. And starting last week, I've been trying to display that to you. So we're doing a little teaching on the deity of Christ. You know, I know that all of you come here, and I'm sure already believe that. But there's nothing like truly beholding for yourselves the powerful testimony of His divine nature in Scripture. Such a study is meant to deepen your confidence and convictions in Him that He really is supreme. When you believe that, you claim to believe that, it's one thing to say, it's another to truly believe, to confess with your mouth and heart that He really is Lord. And, and beholding His true divine nature in Scripture builds that confidence in Him that He really is supreme. And that in turn leads to deeper worship in your life, in your song, in everything. So that's what we're up to. And the way we're kind of organizing this is looking at the DNA of Jesus, meaning his deeds, names, and attributes. Jesus possesses divine deeds, divine names, and divine attributes. Put together a very clear testimony of his divine nature. Last week, we did part one. We covered his divine deeds. And today, we're moving on to his divine names, which is another really powerful truth. Jesus bears the very names and titles of God. And that's not to be taken lightly because God doesn't take his names and titles lightly. His name captures the essence of his being. And God cannot share that with any creature. But as we're going to see in Scripture this morning, as Jesus shares in the divine names of God, so he reveals he is no mere creature but very God himself. So just to continue last week's theme, let me give you, top, or, uh, I would say, the top four divine names of Jesus, if you, if you have to rank them at least, the top four divine names of Jesus. And again, all of this is meant to build up your confidence in Christ as Lord, that you might truly magnify, worship, and exalt his name in your life. And begin with this, number one, Jesus as Lord, slash Yahweh. If you're a note taker, you can put that, Jesus as Lord, slash Yahweh. Now most people, they just want to know, is Jesus ever actually called God in the Bible? The answer to that question is yes, and we'll see that shortly. However, that's not actually the best place to start when studying the divine names of Jesus, because Jesus possesses a more significant divine name. And that is Lord. To this, most would say, wait, how, how is Lord more important as a divine title for Jesus than God? We think of God at top of the list, right? Well, we're going to see how the name Lord was just as much a title of divinity for Jesus as God. But in fact, what makes Lord more important when applied to Jesus is that not only does it teach that he is God, but it teaches he's the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of Israel, the God of the covenant. Jesus is the Lord God Yahweh come down. Which you have to recall is that both Lord and God were chief titles for God in the Old Testament. You know that. 
he was the Lord God, Yahweh God. You remember the Shema? That's like the basic Jewish confession of faith. Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So there's only one God, and he is the Lord. God, Lord, they're divine titles. However, as we know, this God was revealed to exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. How do you communicate such a, a wild truth? There's one God, one in essence, three in person. How do you teach something like that? Well, one of the conventions the New Testament writers adopted was to apply the divine name Lord from the Old Testament to Jesus while mostly reserving the divine title God for the Father. There are exceptions. Sometimes the Father is called Lord, and sometimes the Son is called God. We'll see that. But for the most part, the divine name of Lord is transferred over and given to Jesus, and is seen as just as much a divine name for Jesus as it was for God in the Old Testament. And this, this allows the New Testament writers to maintain some distinction between Father and Son, yet while maintaining the deity of both. A perfect example of this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, where Paul says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And here Paul, he's playing off of the Shema of Israel. You know, the Lord is our God. Yet in this one God, there's Father and there's Son. And the Son is revealed to be just as divine by his name, Lord. You might recall in the Old Testament, the word Lord was used to translate the, the covenant name of God, which was Yahweh. So you read your Old Testament, you see the word Lord in all caps, L-O-R-D, in all caps in your Bible. That's telling you that actually translates that the, the proper, the covenant name of God, which he revealed as Yahweh. This convention was carried over into the Greek New Testament, where the Greek word kurios, which means Lord, was used to translate that covenant name of God, Yahweh. Now the word kurios, Lord, it can sometimes refer to a mere human master. But whenever it's used of God, it was always understood to translate his divine name, his covenant name, Yahweh. And what's so amazing about this is Jesus, he's referred to as Lord in that divine sense all over the New Testament. If you're not quite following along, some examples, hopefully we'll clear it all up. Matthew 3.3, 3, John the Baptist He's preaching, and he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, Make ready the way of the Lord. And he applies it to Jesus, right? Jesus, the Lord, he has come. That's John's whole message. The kicker, though, is that in Isaiah 40, verse 3, which he quotes, it says, Make ready the way of Yahweh. Yahweh was supposed to come to deliver the people, and he did in Jesus or how about John, chapter 12, verse 41? There John is teaching about Jesus, and he quotes Isaiah 6 to explain Christ's role in Israel's hardening. And John says, These things Isaiah said 
because he saw his glory and spoke of him, talking about Jesus. The thing is, though, if you know Isaiah 6, you know it's, it's this episode where Isaiah sees the throne room of God. And who does Isaiah see in his vision? He sees the Lord God, Yahweh, seated on his throne. Yet John tells us, Isaiah, really, he was looking at Christ. He was beholding Christ, the glory of Christ, for Christ is God. We could also point to Acts 2.21. Peter is preaching, and he quotes Joel 2, verse 32, which says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We know that. We still preach that, right? And Peter went on to preach the name of Jesus Whoever calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. It's still true, and we, we still preach that. There's salvation in no other name. But yet again, if you go back and read Joel 2.32, it says Yahweh's name was meant to save. The verse says, whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Yet Peter has no problem applying that to Jesus, for he is that God, Yahweh, incarnate. But you keep going because there are tons of examples of Jesus as Lord directly fulfilling all these prophecies that were supposed to be true of Yahweh. But that's only because Jesus is the divine Lord. Likewise, Jesus as the divine Lord, he takes over all the roles of Yahweh from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Yahweh himself said that he was Israel's only shepherd, redeemer, Savior, Judge, Bridegroom, King, Lord of Lords, Lord of Glory, Lord of the Sabbath, Holy One. The list goes on. But Jesus comes and he takes over all of these roles, all of them. His identity to us is no secret. And this is why Jesus as Lord takes over and eclipses Yahweh as Lord in the New Testament, but without contradiction, because he is God. And so you have verses like Romans 10:9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This explains why Jesus as Lord becomes now the saving confession for all people. For to truly confess Jesus as Lord means you truly believe he's sovereign, he's supreme, he's divine. To confess Jesus as Lord, it's not merely to say the words or to think he's powerful like a mighty angel. To confess Christ as Lord is to confess that he's the Lord God. And it's no wonder then that 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, anyone can mouth the words. That's not what it's talking about. But to truly embrace in your heart that Christ is Lord that's a divine work of the Holy Spirit that is revealed through regeneration, that you really believe he is the Lord God. All this goes to say, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as the Lord Yahweh, it's a divine name that rightly belongs to him. Even in our passage in Philippians 2, like we learned last week, it was said of Yahweh in Isaiah that every knee would bow to him. To Yahweh, every tongue would confess him. Yet in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it's applied, all applied to Jesus. 
Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus as Lord becomes the name above all names. Such supreme, superlative honor, that belongs to God alone. Yet we readily give that praise to Jesus for the Spirit indeed has revealed to us that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord God. So first, hopefully that gives you a snapshot of why Jesus as Lord is his supreme divine title. Now, number two, here's a second one. That's actually related. Jesus as I am. Jesus as, you could say, the great I am, or Jesus as I am. It's related to the title Lord. Jesus assumes for himself the name I am. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that sounds really weird because it doesn't sound like much of a name, and it's not. It's a verb of being, like to be or or I am. But given the Old Testament usage of I am as a special name for God, the fact that Jesus takes this name for himself bears huge significance on his identity. Let me just jog your memory. Back in Exodus 3, God reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush. You remember that? And God discloses his name and his nature to Moses. Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? And he's going to go and tell the people, and who shall he say sent him? And, and God says, Exodus 3:14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God uses the Hebrew verb to be to reveal his nature to Moses. Remember, for the Hebrews, names mean something. They carry significance. So what other name could God use to reveal his transcendence, his eternality, his self-existence, other than simply the word I am? God simply exists. He has no beginning, no end. He simply is. Now, I am, it's not a popular title for God in the Old Testament, but you have to realize actually in the Hebrew that that verb I am, it's actually very related to Yahweh. The the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is derived from I am. And no wonder right after this, God says to Moses in the next verse, verse 15, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Speaking of the Lord, Yahweh, he says. He's letting them know, like, you've got the right God. I'm the God of your fathers. You know me by that, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But I'm, I'm also Yahweh. This is his covenant name that he was giving to them by which they would know his everlasting love. So here we have God disclosing himself to Moses. And he's about to call out a people for himself. And he reveals his covenant name, Yahweh. But even more fundamental, he reveals the name of his absolute essence and self-existence. He is the great I Am. He simply exists, no beginning, no end. He's the eternal God. Now you turn in the New Testament, though, and several times Jesus takes for himself this more fundamental name for God. 
Just like Jesus fully associated himself with Yahweh from the Old Testament, he identifies himself as the great I am. You find this several times in John's gospel. John is noted for recording seven great I am statements of Jesus. But for the sake of time, we're just going to look at the greatest of them. And that's John 8, 58. So if you want to turn over, flip back over to John chapter 8, verse 58. The whole context here is the nature of salvation. The Jews believed they were saved de facto simply because they were physical descendants of Abraham. They had Abraham as their physical father. Therefore, of course, they were in the kingdom. But Jesus teaches them that, no, that's actually not enough. You must have God as your father and Jesus as your Lord. And if God is really your father, then you will love the son. Indeed, Jesus supersedes Abraham by far. Only Jesus can make you free from sin. So in verse 51, Jesus says that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. They understand this to be a claim to be greater than Abraham, for Abraham died, so they confront Jesus, verse 53. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Notice the issue now, it's Christ's identity. Just who are you? And Jesus responds by continuing to set himself up as superior to Abraham. In verse 54, Jesus answered. Let's just jump down to verse 56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and, and you've seen Abraham. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You notice when Jesus says here, he doesn't say before Abraham was born, I was. That would merely be a reference to his pre-existence. Rather, he clearly says, I am. Before Abraham. Abraham was born, who lived 2,000 years before Jesus. He says, even before that, I am. Unmistakable reference to Exodus 3.14, that covenant name of God. Christ is referencing not merely his pre-existence to Abraham, but his self-existence, just like God. Not only did Jesus precede Abraham in being, he superseded Abraham in being. He's making a claim to not just be the Messiah, but the divine Messiah. Abraham was created. Christ was not. He was always God. Jehovah's Witnesses will translate this verse, Jesus saying, I have been. But it's a deliberate mistranslation to support their bias. In the Greek, there's really no question. Jesus says, I am. And with this, he's not referencing his age, but his identity, which fits the whole context. He's not telling them merely that he's way older than Abraham, but that he's superior to Abraham, for he is Abraham's God. He's saying that he is that self-existent, eternal, independent, transcendent God come down. 
The fact that Jesus was making a claim to deity is confirmed by their response. They fully understood Jesus was making himself out to be God. To them, not believing, it was blasphemy. So they responded accordingly and they were going to kill him. But John records this, obviously, on purpose, because the words of Jesus and their response together confirm Christ's true identity, which is why John is writing, Jesus, he is the great I am. The God of their fathers, come down. Jesus is the Lord and he is even the great I am. A couple more here. Let me give you number three. A third divine name or title for Jesus. Number three, Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus as the Son of God. So there another title of Jesus that some overlook, but it's very telling of his deity. In the Old Testament, it was revealed and promised that the Messiah would be a son. But as Jesus comes as the Messiah, though, it's clear he's, he's something more. At birth, he's given the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He's also called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in Luke 135, the child is called the Son of God because God is literally his father via the virgin birth. He is the Son of God. Now, it must be pointed out, Jesus did not become the Son of God as physical birth. He was not created. The human nature of Jesus was created at the incarnation, hence he was born. But his divine nature, his nature as the Son of God, was eternal with God. He is the Son because of his relationship with God the Father, and that's an eternal relationship the Father and the Son had eternally with the Spirit. I mean, isn't that something we actually learned from our original text that we're springboarding from, Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. It told us that before the incarnation, before the man Christ Jesus was born, Jesus existed in the very form of God. He was equal with God. But he emptied himself, not of his divine attributes, but of his divine rights. And he humbled himself, not by losing his deity, but by taking on humanity. Jesus Jesus became a son of man, but he always was the son of God. Furthermore, the New Testament understands son of God as a special title for Jesus. That means equal with God, part of deity. First, you see this in Jesus calling God his own father. Jesus expressed an extremely close and unique relationship with God the Father in a way other Jews never would. Jesus prayed to God as my Father. That's something Jesus at the time never would do for the very reason that it's associating yourself as the Son, making God your Father, it's blasphemous. But Jesus exclusively prayed to God as his Father. So John chapter 5, for example, the Jews... They're persecuting Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. But he says to them, John 5, verse 17 and 18, he says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18 says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking to all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, 
but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus, he doesn't back down from this misunderstanding, so to speak. He affirms it. He is, as people say today, he doubles down on it. Even later in verse 22, we saw last week, Jesus has the audacity to say that all people will come to honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That for sure is blasphemous unless he really is the Son of God and God the Son. Jesus says something very similar over in John 10. There he's teaching about his relationship to the Father. And he goes all the way and says this, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. See, the Jews at the time, they they fully understood Jesus was making a claim to be the Son. And in claiming such an intimate relationship with the Father, he was claiming deity. He was claiming divine sonship. And in the end, isn't this one of the reasons they killed Jesus? Remember when Jesus was on trial, the Jews said to Pilate, John 19, verse 7, they said, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And to them, they fully understood that that meant he's claiming deity. But that part, they actually weren't making up. That's the one assertion they actually got right about Jesus. A lot of things they just made up. Remember the night before, Jesus was on trial before the Jews, and he kept silent the whole trial. But finally, the high priest asked him directly, you tell us plainly, are you the Christ and the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And truly, that was blasphemy worthy of death, unless it were true. And we know that his works testified it was true. They should have believed, but they were hardened in their sin. Jesus said to Philip later, or earlier, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. God the Father was revealing himself in his divine Son. But we also know it was the Father's good pleasure for the Son to be rejected, to not be recognized. Like we learned in Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we know that Jesus, God the Son, did that for us. We were his enemies, yet in love he he humbled himself, took on humanity, and died for you, for your sins, for your reconciliation to the Father, that you might likewise be called children of God. You see, I hope all all this study is helping you just fully appreciate Christ for who he really is, what he really did that you might exalt him likewise in your heart. Like we read last week in Psalm 2, how blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. And the only reason we can have that confidence is because he is the Son of God.
Well, we're going to finish with this. Number four, what many of you have probably been waiting for, Jesus as God. Jesus as God. Now we can finally approach the title God as applied to Jesus. We think of the word God as being top of the list as titles for deity. So, again, many Christians, they just want to know, like, is he ever actually called God? And the answer to that is yes. Now, like I said earlier, though, through the progress of Revelation, the apostles understood that God, the God of their fathers, he's one in essence, but he's three in person, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a nuanced understanding to God. Where, for example, Jesus can be equated to God, but he cannot be equated to God the Father or God the Spirit. So, what is the best way to describe and speak of the one God with three persons? Like I said before, the New Testament writers, they adopted this convention of mostly reserving the divine title God for the Father and using the divine title Lord for the Son. Both being titles of deity, yet allowing them to maintain some distinction for the Father and the Son, because the Father is not the Son. So no, Jesus is not called God on every page of the New Testament. He is called Lord pretty much on every page, and that's just as much a title of deity as we saw. But as I mentioned, there are exceptions. Sometimes the Father is called Lord, and sometimes the Son is called God, and we're going to look at those right now. Now real quick, let me also say off the bat that I know that all of these verses are hotly contested by Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, and those like them. They, they try and work very hard to make each of these one by one say something other than Jesus is God. And we need to work, therefore, just as hard to show that they really do say what they seem to say, that Jesus is God. That takes a lot of time, though, time we don't have right now. The good news, however, is that we've already done this. This is why we spent so much time a year ago in our Sunday evening study covering the deity of Christ. We spent that, that way we could spend, for example, a whole hour just on John chapter 1, verse 1. We had no rush, all the time in the world, and we could really explore these as they're meant to be. All this goes to say, if you really want to take these verses deeper, I'm going to have to just point you to, to our old Sunday evening study because we don't have that time right now. For now, we can merely survey them, and that's what we're going to do. So with that said, let me just share with you the, the key verses where Jesus is directly called God. You probably know the first one, John chapter 1, verse 1. And if you're still in John, just, just flip back there, John chapter 1, verse 1. Most people know the first one. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's super clear from the context, this word is Jesus, the divine logos, the divine word. It teaches Jesus was in the beginning with God, very reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. As we learned last week, all three members of the Trinity were involved in the divine work of creation. But this verse deepens because not only does it say that the word was with God, but it says the word was God. Now, how can both be true at the same time? I mean, is Jesus, is he distinct 
from the Father or, or the same? Which is it? Is he the same as God? Well, the, the answer is both. Jesus, or rather, this is John teaching that nuanced understanding of, of the triune God. God is one. There's only one God. Yet he exists in three persons, each with different roles and relationships to one another and to creation. We're not going to say the Trinity right now, but it's really the only way to make sense of verses like this. It, it are verses like these that, that build up this understanding of who God is. Jesus, the eternal word, though not the father, still shares the essence of deity. And so John can call him and say he's with God and he is God in the same sentence. John himself confirms this notion down in verse 18. There's another place where Jesus is called God. John 1, verse 18. He says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, most people know John 1, 1, but don't forget verse 18. Verse 18 is the conclusion of John's introduction, and he on purpose begins and ends his introduction with references to the deity of Christ. That's the whole point of his gospel, one of the main points. And in verse 18, everybody agrees the first reference to God is clearly a reference to God the Father. No one has seen God at any time. But then what do you make of that second reference to God? Because whoever that is, he's clearly distinct from the first mention, the, the Father. It's clearly referring to Jesus, and John calls him the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. He's explained him. Only begotten, it's a term refers to the uniqueness of Jesus, not his creation. He's one and only. And so there's really no way around it. It's a very clear example of Jesus, the Son, being distinct from the Father, yet still called God. So twice, actually, in John's introduction, Jesus is called God. It makes perfect sense. Again, one of the main points that John has in his gospel is to display Jesus as the divine Son of God and God the Son. In fact, this is why John basically concludes his gospel with another instance of Jesus being called God. Turn now to John 20. If you want to follow along, John 20. This passage is actually, in the narrative, the climax of John's gospel. He begins and ends his gospel with revelations of the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and God the Son. You probably know this one too. You've got Thomas, doubting Thomas. He didn't see the risen Lord at first, so he doubted until the Lord appeared to him and offered him to touch his hands and side. And at that point, Thomas responded by confessing his faith. And what did he say? You guys probably know this, John 20, 28. Thomas answered, and said to him, said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. It's very hard to argue against this verse. It's obvious in the context Thomas was speaking to and of Jesus. No verbal gymnastics can get you around this one. No, however, Thomas was not identifying Jesus with the Father. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus referred to the Father as his God. 
Like with John 1, 1 and 1.18, Jesus is distinct from the Father, but he's also God. He's the Son of God. He's God the Son. And so Thomas can say, my Lord and my God. There are other examples. We don't have time to cover them in detail. You could add Acts 20:28 20, and Romans 9:5, where Jesus is referred to as God. Acts 20:28, 20, Romans 9:5. In Titus 2:13 and 2 Peter 1:1, 1, 1, Jesus is called God our Savior, both terms referring to him. Titus 2:13, 2 Peter 1:1, 1, 1, he's God and our Savior. In fact, I preach through Titus and 2 Peter here at this church. You get those sermons, you'll get the full version of those where Jesus is called God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, quotes Psalm 45, which says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But he applies that to Jesus the Son. He's talking about the Son, and he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Another example where Jesus is called God. Finally, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. Just as John concluded his gospel with a reference to the deity of Jesus, so he concludes his, his first epistle with a reference to the deity of Jesus. And he says in 1 John 5, 20, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Again, if you want like like the Bible college version of all these verses, with the detailed teaching, you'll have to get that Sunday night study we did last year. But for now, I, I trust we can say with John that we know the Son of God has come and he is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the Son of God and he's God the Son. This is no mere invention of some church council, but it's a testimony of Scripture all over. And my prayer now is that as you consider, as you behold all this testimony last week, this week, you just further lift high the name of Jesus in your life. Coming to realize your life is not about the glory of your name or the praise of your name or the worship of your name. It's about the praise and the glory and worship of his name. He's the Lord of glory. It's his name that is the name above all names. To be high and lifted up and live that way. As you come to, in a way, lose yourself, that's where your name gains value when it's found under and in the name of Jesus. It doesn't mean to, to live for his name, to exalt his name. It's not merely just singing a bunch of Jesus songs or just saying his name a bunch of times, but, but it's living in such a way, even outside the church, that he is truly your Lord, that others might come to know him as Lord. It's part of what it means. We said earlier, you know that verse, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That That's not at all about head knowledge or just some verbal confession that you can just you can pay someone to say that it doesn't mean anything confessing jesus as lord it's not just listening to a bunch of songs about jesus or, or repeating his name over and over like it's a, a charm remember his name represents his person 
his character, his essence. So to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess him as the Lord God, the Son of God, God the Son. It is to believe in your innermost being that everything he said and did was true. And therefore to live like it's true. And like Paul Washer says in his book, The Gospel Call on True Conversion, that doesn't sound too radical until you stop and think about some of the things Jesus said. And I'll read you his list. He says, quote, of Jesus, He is the eternal God and the creator of the universe. He is the light and life of all men. He is humankind's only savior. He is the absolute sovereign of the universe. He will determine the eternal destiny of all men. He's more valuable than the combined wealth of the world. The promotion of his will and agenda is the purpose of the universe and of every individual's life. He's to be loved above all other persons and things. He will judge his people's service to him and reward them accordingly. End quote. To confess Jesus as Lord means to believe and live like all that's actually true and more. And you put it that way, it sounds a little more radical, and rightly so. And no wonder, again, only the Holy Spirit can reveal to someone that Jesus truly is Lord. The natural man does not believe that, does not want to believe that. And that's really what it comes down to. Why, why do people reject Jesus? He's so full of love and grace and truth. Who would reject him? Well, usually it's because people, they don't want a sovereign. They don't want a Lord, a master, a God in their life telling them what to do, convicting them of wrongdoing. I mean, if if they're going to believe in God, they must first bring God down to their level, reshape him in their own image, where now he serves them. God exists to serve them and their needs, not the other way around. But this Jesus, he's only for people who finally come to see their own sin before their creator. God has written his law on our hearts. You know your sin before him, your wrongdoing before him. And you know, having sinned, you deserve a just judgment before a perfectly holy and just God. But even still, God, in his greater love, sent his only son, Jesus, to to fix that for you, to, to die for you to take on human flesh and die on the cross. And it wasn't just a death. He was standing in our place, soaking up the entirety of God's wrath that was for you, your punishment he took. Jesus died and yet rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And now he stands offering you complete forgiveness, reconciliation with the Father, a new and eternal life all for those who would come to him as Lord and understand and believe he really is this Lord. Jesus stands now as the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through him. You've heard it said, all roads lead to God, right? That's true. It's true. All roads lead to God. Every worldview, every world religion will take you to God. But you'll only find God in judgment through all those different roads. You'll only meet a God who will be your judge. Instead, there's only one road 
that you can travel down where you will find God in mercy and grace and love. And that road leads through Christ. So I pray you come to know him who is true, for he is true God and eternal life. To Jesus belongs the name which is above all names. And only when you really get that and you believe that will you really be able to live and lift high his name. And that's what this whole study is about. The study today of the divine names of Jesus, added last week to the divine deeds of Jesus, shows us Jesus for who he really is. And I pray these truths just sink in and deepen your confidence in him. I mean, do you ever doubt or question the faith? Times of weakness come for all in the flesh. But be strengthened knowing Jesus, he truly is the Lord, the great I am, the Son of God, even God the Son. And knowing this, you should know he he truly can save you. He really can redeem you. He is the answer to all your problems. He can deliver you from whatever affliction you have. You have not misplaced your hope. You have not believed in vain. Those in the world may still not believe. They may still scoff. They may even persecute you. But you just keep trusting in his name to save. And only by trusting in his name can you say with Paul, 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And let us believe in the name of Jesus. Our great God and Father, we praise you this morning for your word and for your magnificent plan that you've revealed to us. You are a great God. You are a just judge, and we have sinned before you. Yet in your supreme love, you devised this plan to save, to to make one road, one narrow path of salvation, and it goes through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent to take on human flesh and die as one of us, to take all of our sins upon himself. So to pay for them, to wash them away. Lord, we're not righteous, but we can be made righteous in and through the name of Jesus. And we confess with Peter now there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. And whoever will believe in the name of Jesus will be saved. For those here who have made that confession, I pray this morning it is strengthened and deepened they can really place their confidence in Christ to answer everything in life. He is our hope, our only hope. And any here this this morning, Lord, who have not come to bow the knee to Christ and to confess with their tongue that he is Lord, I pray you convict them through the Spirit right now and reveal to them Jesus, he really is the way, the truth, the life. He really is the Lord, and he's their only hope Convict them and cause them to repent and believe and turn to you that today might be the day of their salvation as they come to have their names written in his book of life. We bless your name, Lord. We praise your name and that of the Son and the Spirit and magnify your name. And that be our life's desire now to lift high the name of our triune God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.